listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Psalm 185, or excuse me, <laughs> Psalm 85. I was thinking of Psalm 142, which we looked at last week, and we looked at, we're calling it for these first couple of weeks, situational praying. We're looking at people who were in certain situations and how they prayed, so we're not looking at necessarily instruction on prayer. I'm hoping that we'll find something in God's Word that will motivate us, that will stir us, that will inspire us to pray. Last week, David was in a cave. This week, we're looking at a different author and a different circumstance as we look at Psalm 85 this morning. Um, last week, David was praying for rescue. This week, uh, we see the sons of Korah writing a song, and it is about a prayer for revival, prayer for revival. And so Psalm 85, I want to read it and then um, set the the context, um, and then look at the text this morning and try to understand what God's Word is saying to us. Psalm 85, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You, all of this is in the past tense, things God, God has done in the past, past mercies. Um, you were favorable to your land. Land is mentioned three times. It's, uh, he's mentioning God's blessing on his covenant people. Them being in this land was a part of their covenant with God. They broke the covenant. They were removed from the land. They were taken into captivity. He's saying, Lord, restore us to our covenant relationship. And symbolic of that or the reality of that for them would be them being returned to the land that God had given them. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Israel. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. We see God turning from his anger, and now the writer of the Psalms is going to ask God to turn his heart. So we move to the second section, which is um, not not just them remembering the past, but he's looking at his current distress, the situation that he's currently in. He says, restore us again, O God. Restore us like we were restored in the past, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice? In you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak for. He will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And then he moves to a future hope, beginning in verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. One of the most uh, amazing verses in all of scripture. In verse 11, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The sons of Korah wrote this. You can uh, learn about them in uh, Numbers chapter 16. There were three sons of Korah that participated in the writing of the Psalms, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan. And the context is in this situation that they're in. And let me just go back and give you a, a brief history of Israel. Their context is that Israel is constantly experiencing life from one extreme to another. It is this spiritual yo-yo. They're, they're either on top and they're loving God and they're serving God and God's blessing them, or they're on the verge of extinction as a nation. And that happens over and over and over again. You know, from reading the Old Testament that Abraham and uh, 70 or so people find themselves going, um, excuse me, not Abraham, uh, Isaac, uh, 
Who was it? I keep hearing things. What'd you say, Whitney? Jacob. Jacob and his family leave um, where they were and end up going to Egypt where Joseph is. They get to Egypt and they're put in the land of Goshen. While they're in the land of Goshen, they're there for about 400 years and things go from bad to worse while they're there. They go from being these respected, uh, at least in their own circle of friends, these respected shepherds to now they become the slaves of the Egyptians and they're making brick for all of their building projects and so they start calling out to God. And so the nation's grown from 75 people to maybe 2 million people. It's this massive uh, nation and all of a sudden God hears their cry and he raises up this guy named Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. This battle ensues between the gods of Pharaoh and the God, the one God of Moses, the one God of Moses wins. There is the Passover and all of the Egyptian firstborn die and God's people, the Hebrews now leave out of that land and they are redeemed. So we see them at a, a very low point. We see all of a sudden now there is the exodus, a high point, salvation. They go into the desert and when they get into the desert, they come to Mount Sinai and they establish this covenant with God. But before you know it, they're busy breaking the covenant, they're busy violating the covenant and they leave Mount Sinai and they spend the next 40 years wandering around with Moses' leadership in the desert. At the end of those 40 years, um, Moses passes off the scene. A guy named Joshua comes on the scene. You know the story of Joshua. That's right after uh, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we've got Joshua. Joshua comes on the scene. They cross over the river. They go into the land, and they're overtaking the land throughout the life of Joshua. And it's a time of conquest. So they go from this low point to this high point of great victory, going in and seizing the land that God has given them, this beautiful and amazing land. But by the time Joshua dies, the hearts of these people has grown cold and we enter into this time of judges. And so you come to the book of Judges and you see this people that are doing everything that's right in their own eyes. They're doing exactly what they want to do. They've forgotten about God. They fall on hard times. And we see seven cycles of, of sin and God raises up a judge to deliver his people. So they're on this spiritual yo-yo once again. And then we come to the end of Judges and this guy named Samuel comes on the scene. Israel wants a king. They appoint uh, Saul to be the king, and so Saul is the king of Israel. Saul just doesn't do right. Saul is a sinful, wicked man, and so God's king, David, is anointed. And then through 14 or 15 years, Saul is chasing David. Saul dies. David is crowned king, and Israel experiences probably the greatest time in their history. The, the, the city is fortified. They're uh, very victorious, very powerful, well-recognized, very prosperous he was followed by his son Solomon, who wasn't quite, quite the guy in some ways that David was, but Solomon was the, one of the wisest men that ever lived, and Solomon builds this beautiful temple, and the people are able to worship, but after Solomon, Israel and its 12 tribes divide into two kingdoms, uh, ten, uh, 10 northern kingdoms and two southern kingdoms, and then they have two kings, and they go through this time of division, they go through this time of sin. And because of their sin and because of their violation of their covenant with God, they end up going into Babylonian captivity and Assyrian captivity. Seventy years. We're talking about years and years and years. We're not talking about a few weeks. Seventy years of captivity, but then at the end of 70 years, they are released from captivity. And you can read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and you can see where these people when they're released from captivity, go back to the land. The walls are torn down. The temple is destroyed. The, the, the city that was once glorious, where they believed the glory of God rested, the power of God just shone forth from this city of Jerusalem. It is now an ash heap. It has been ransacked. It is sickening. And so these people are released from captivity with all of the hope of the glory that they remembered in the past. And when they get there, all of a sudden, now they find themselves in, in great and deep distress. They're wondering if God even exists anymore. And so in this distress, we have guys like Ezra and Nehemiah, or you can read Habakkuk saying, Lord, when are you going to show up? When are you going to do something? When are things going to be restored? And we have this psalm that the psalmist has written and he's remembering those high times. He's remembering those times when God was great and when their nation 
was great, but now he's praying for God to do again what he had done in the past. And so he writes, he prays. I don't know what your life is like. Some of you haven't lived long enough. Some of you think if you're in your 30s that that this is the best time that there has ever been. But some of us in our 60s and 70s and 80s, we remember a different time. And we think, just like everybody else, that the time in the past was a better time. But I want to tell you, there was a time when God was weightier than he is now. There was a time when people believed in prayer. There was a time when we were so excited about gathering to, to worship and to learn that we'd go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. <laughs> then we go to visitation on Tuesday night. I'm not saying that those things make us more spiritual or not, but some of us can remember when things were different. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. And he's asking for God to return. I think our hearts would long for Scripture to be given its place, for spirituality to be given its place, for salvation to be given its place, for prayer to be given its place, for Christianity to at least be seen as something that is weighty and serious. And it seems like all of these things are lost in the day and age in which we live. Jonathan Edwards said, It is God's will through his wonderful grace that the prayers of his saints should be one of the great principal means for carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. And it is revealed that when God is about to accomplish great things for his church, he will begin by a remarkable pouring out of the spirit of grace and supplication. In other words, when God is moving, he will begin when he moves to move his people to prayer. Jonathan Edwards wrote that back in the 1700s. And if you uh, just poke at history a little bit back in the 1700s for America, you know that Jonathan Edwards is credited with the beginning of the first great awakening. And he wrote that in some thoughts on revival. What is the text telling us this morning as that is exactly what the psalmist is praying for here? Now, don't, don't get lost on the term revival. Don't, don't get hung up there. Some folks think revival is some guy with 10 sermons and 10 suits, and he goes around from church to church to church for a week or two weeks at a time and preaches those 10 sermons and wear those, wears those 10 suits. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't get hung up on that. I want you to think about the revival of our hearts, the revival of our love for Jesus Christ, the, re the revival of our faith in Christ. So, so think about that when you think about revival. And, and here's what the psalmist is looking at in the first three verses. The first thing we see is past mercies. And we read through that, and I want to look at it and, and reverse it. The first thing I want you to understand is the psalmist is asking for the forgiveness of sin. And so the first thing I want you to see as we look at past mercies is the impact of sin. Is the impact of sin. We uh, miscalculate sin and its impact. We, we think it's trivial. We miscalculate sin's impact on our heart, on our soul, on our mind, on our family, on our church, on our nation, on our desires. We miscalculate sin. We don't recognize that sin is like poison, that sin, when it enters into our hearts and minds and lives and eyes and ears and actions, that it is a rottenness in our soul. And the text would have to bear this out that Israel just cannot historically seem to keep herself out of sin. Her sin brings her over and over again to the brink of extinction, but then all of a sudden, when you think all is done and all is lost, God moved to revive Israel. Mercy and grace will never be needed or valued until we we do an accurate assessment of sin and its deadly impact. Please hear me. Sin is attractive. Sin is beautiful. Sin is alluring. Sin is magnetic. At least that's its effect on my life. I don't know about yours. There's something inside of me that hears sin saying, you want comfort? 
I'll give it to you. You want to feel better? I'll give it to you. You want to numb your spiritual sensitivities to everything that's going on in the world, to all the problems in the world? I can help you. Sin says, I will be your friend. Sin says, I will walk with you. Sin says, have you prayed to God? Did he hear you? Did he answer? Why don't you try sin? You will get an immediate response and gratification out of sin. Sin will appeal to our soul, but let us not misunderstand. Let us not miscalculate. Don't let it be lost on us that sin is deceptive. Sin is destructive. Sin is corrosive. Sin is corrupting. Sin in its mildest form is horrific. Sin will always be punished right down to the last drop. Sin destroys us and sin destroys our relationship with God and sin destroys our relationship with each other. It is not trivial and your life will never in any way be better because of sin. And that is the original lie. And that is the thing that caught Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Satan convinced them that their life with God wasn't good enough. And he had something better to offer. And he had something better to offer. And he doesn't. I would encourage you this morning to come face to face with the enemy of your soul, with the enemy of your family with the enemy of your life on this planet, with the enemy of the land in which we live, and that is that is sin. Sin is not something that you put on and take off. It's not like getting in the car to drive to the store and you're just using it as a, a means to an end, and once that means to an end is accomplished, you all of a sudden get out of it and cast it aside. Sin is not that way. That's why you and I can't say, I get into that sin and I'm going to get out of that sin myself. That sin is already in you. It is born in you. We have a sin nature, and that sin, when it gets on us and in us, there is nothing that we can possibly do in and of ourselves to be able to deal with it. And that moves us to the second portion that we're looking at here. First of all is the impact of sin as he looks at past mercies. But then we see very clearly in verses 2 and 3 the forgiveness of sin. He says in verse 2, You forgive the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. The word forgiven means to lift or carry or take away. Iniquity is guilt or punishment or shame. He says, you take away. Sin is like a weight pressing down on us so that we can move. And forgiveness takes that weight that is pressing down on us and lifts that weight of guilt and iniquity and shame off of us when we are forgiven. If you are in sin today, it is weighing you down and you can't breathe, and you can't think. So he says, Lord, forgive the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. The word covered means to remove. It's like there is this, this sin, this, this foulness that is inescapable. It's, it's like a, a blemish that you can't cover. You can put as much makeup on it as you want to. You can put as much clothes on it as you want to. You can whitewash it all you want to, but there is this inescapable, obvious, unavoidable, festering skin, that sin that covers us. But, but the scriptures is saying, God, in the past, you covered over that sin. You spread the blood of Jesus Christ over that sin. You covered it. He also says, you took away all of your wrath. I love the way he says that. You, your, your wrath, which, uh, by the way, the only way that a just God can, can um, deal with sin is to pour his wrath out on it. So God didn't just take his wrath away and make it disappear. When God took his wrath away, when, when, um, when God withdrew his wrath, he had to put it somewhere else. And he put it on his son. He put it on his son. He said, you took away all of your wrath. You, God, gathered up all of your wrath that, that rightfully, righteously deserves to go on sinful people. You gathered it all up and you took your wrath 
away. All of it, every bit of it, every ounce of it. None was left. Wrath is this boiling fury that builds up and erupts in rage against sin. You say, what is going on in the land that we live in? What is happening? There's so much sin. Sin is rampant. People have lost their mind. People have gone crazy. And it's like God's not doing anything. Um, the, 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 the kettle of his wrath is, is boiling, is boiling, is boiling. And it's going to overflow. The, the boiling fury of the wrath of God will erupt in rage against sin. You're not going to hear that anywhere else, and maybe you don't want to hear me say it. But sin is serious, and sin must be dealt with by death because God himself is holy. But he's telling us here in this text that God has, has, has taken all of his wrath away and he has turned back. Look at the text, verse 3. You withdrew all your wrath and turned from your hot anger. He's turned for some reason back to Genesis 1 and 2 and treating us as though we are no longer sinners because he poured his wrath out on, out on his son for our sin and he's given us his righteousness. So there's been this, this turning Spurgeon said, all of it, every spot and wrinkle, the veil of love has covered all. Sin has been divinely put out of sight. The wrath of God has been satisfied through the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ who died for our sin in our place. And apart from substitutionary atonement, there, the way I see Scripture, there is no salvation. If Christ did not die for your sin in your place then you must die for it yourself. There is no other way to deal with sin except through death. So sin is this serious matter that has been forgiven. And I'm going back to verse 1 now, and I'm looking at the favor of God. He says in verse 1, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of, ja uh, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. He says, you were favorable. In other words, the, 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 the word favorable means to be pleased with. It means to accept. You have accepted your land. You have brought back. You have returned to a covenant relationship. And if you will look at the words of, of verse, verses 1, 2, and 3 and, and look at them carefully and notice exactly what he's saying here in those words. First of all, the word here is, is Yahweh. He is naming himself. He's saying that I am in a covenant relationship with you. I care about you. And he says, I, Yahweh, um, in the past have been favorable to your land and, and, and I restored Yahweh, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. We didn't restore them ourselves. You forgave the iniquity of your people. We can't forgive ourselves. You covered all our sin. Only, only Yahweh can cover sin. We cannot cover our sin. You withdrew all your wrath. We cannot make him. We cannot earn. We cannot get any favor for ourselves to cause him to withdraw his wrath. You turned from your hot anger. All of these are actions of God. And we need to ask ourselves, who, it is, who is it that forgives? It is God alone who forgives. Who is it that shows favor? It is God alone who shows favor. How does he show favor? He shows favor in forgiving sins. Your biggest problem is not a parking space up by the front door at Target. And all of a sudden you find one and you're like, the favor of God. That's not what he's talking about. The favor of God is not everything going your way. The favor of God is the forgiveness of sins and the restore, restoration of a relationship with him. Who shows favor? God shows favor. What is favor? Favor is the removal of sin and the restoration of a relationship with God. Let me just make some application to the first point here, the, the past mercies. If you are in sin... You cannot get out of sin on your own. If you are in sin, you are in the crosshairs of the wrath of God and you cannot rescue yourself and you cannot save yourself from your sin. Sin destroys our relationship with God and with each other and unless he comes to save us and get us out of our sin, we will stay in our sin. Secondly, you need a holy God to forgive you. And when he does, 
He removes the weight. He covers the stain, and the sin is gone. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear and feel the weight of sin, but I also hope you hear that there is a God who loves so much that he sent his son and he wants you to be free from your sin. And he has come and he has removed the weight and he has covered the stain. And if he has, your sin is gone. If you are in Christ, stop getting up every morning and taking back the weight and the stain that he gave his life to remove from you. Stop getting up every morning and taking back the weight and stain that he gave his life to remove. Does anybody here have any regrets besides me? Anybody here have any? Thank, thank you for, for the four of us. Anybody here have the accuser of the brethren coming and talking to you, reminding you of how awful you are, reminding you of what you've done, reminding you just what a, a, a waste of humanity that you are, right? Everybody like what you see when you look in the mirror? If you like it now, whether you get old, it'll change. Has anybody ever, not audibly, but just inside, hear the enemy saying things to you when you look at yourself in the mirror? And he would love to keep you trapped in your sin when Jesus set you free from your sin. And I would say this morning, stop waking up every morning and believing the lies of the enemy. There, there, is, there is real love and there is real life and there is real forgiveness and there is real hope. But it is only found in the forgiveness that comes to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so, so... If you're in Christ, stop getting up every morning and taking back the weight and the stain that he gave his life to remove. Just take a deep breath if you've had a breath, man. Okay, don't, don't knock the person out in front of you. Folks, if you're in Christ, that weight is gone. And somebody might go to the courthouse and they might find a record of it. Somebody might have a video recording and they might have a record of it. Somebody might have an eyewitness account and they might have a record of it. You might go home to see your mom and daddy and they may remind you of it often. Your enemies may still be talking about it. But because of the finished work of Christ, it's gone. Secondly, if you're in Christ, stop putting weights and stains on other people that Christ has removed. Amen? If you're in Christ, stop putting weights and stains on other people that Christ has removed. We have any married couples here that have offended each other? Does it just keep coming back up? You know? And they've said, please forgive me. Even if you've forgiven each other, have you gone to Christ and asked him to forgive you? That weight and that stain is gone. Do you have people that you see and you, you automatically avoid them? You walk across the other side of the room? I mean, I've never done anything like that, but I know people who have, right? The weight and the stain that we put on other people people has been removed. If you are in Christ, come confidently into the presence of a holy God who longs for you to be there. That's why he says, come boldly to the throne of grace, not because you're good, not because you and I in and of ourselves have any merit to bring to say, thank you, God, I've earned my way in, but because of the finished work of Christ, come boldly to the throne of grace. And when you get there, there will be others who are there with you and don't reject those that he has welcomed, but rejoice with them because just as he lifted our weight and removed our stain, he has lifted their weight and removed their stain. And so the psalmist is looking at past mercies and he's saying, Lord, you lifted the weight 
You removed the stain. We, are, we were at a point in time in history walking with you, and we were alive. Would you do it again? The second thing we see in the text beginning in verse 4 is the present need. And I've divided that up from verse 4 to verse 9. And I just want to go through this, this list of things that he's given us here in the text. First of all, he says, restore us again. He goes back and says, you turned away from your wrath, but now would you turn us? You turned, now turn us. You turned towards your son and put our wrath on your son so that you could turn toward us in love. But now as you turn toward us in love, will you turn us, restore us again? Could, could we pray, oh God, would you turn the hearts of this body of believers to you? We say we believe the gospel. Then believing the gospel means that God turned away from from us in his wrath and turned his wrath on his son and now we have access to him so that he would turn our hearts toward him. So he says, restore us, return. Secondly, he says, put away your indignation. He, he, he gives us that here in verse four. He, he says, cause your indignation to cease. Dissolve your indignation. Make your indignation of none effect. Make your indignation void. Thirdly, he says, remove the offense that destroyed our relationship. He says that you can see in verse five, will you be angry with us forever? Is there no end to your anger? Is there no time limit on your anger? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question that needed to just be directed to God. We need to direct it to each other. Is there, is there no end? Is there no end to your anger? Is there no end to my anger? God's anger is righteous. God's anger is justified. But he's pleading with God. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? He's saying, Lord, remove the offense that destroyed our relationship. And this is the universal phenomenon. It's the phenomenon of offense. There was an offense because of the sin of the people, and they, they, they violated the covenant with God, and that is an offense against God, and now God is angry with them, and now they're going to pay for that, and that is just, and that is right. And even to us, the justification for breaking or severing a relationship is offense. You offend me, I'm going to take you off of Facebook. I'm going to remove you from my contacts. I'm not going to speak to you. I'm not going to send you a Christmas card. I diss you. And it seems to be never ending, and it's rooted in the fall, and it's rooted in our sin. But there is this sense of offense where it seems like until the offense is paid for that there will never be any sort of rec reconciliation or restoration of the relationship. And when you find yourself in captivity for 70 years or you find these things going from generation to generation over 400 years when you're in Egyptian bondage, you wonder, is it ever going to end? And it seems like that sin is just going to run rampant many times in our lives and in our nation. Lord, is it ever going to end? Would you please remove the offense so that your wrath, so that your anger, so that your indignation against us can end. But then he blurts out asking questions again in verse 6. Will you not revive us again? This is the center of this entire passage. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? He's praying. Will you not revive us again? The word revive means to live. It means to give people life. It means to bring back to life. We are spiritually dead and our sin has separated us from God. And we don't have the capacity to generate lives from within ourselves. Salvation is not about you being a better you. Salvation is not about you trying harder. Salvation is about Christ who is life, coming into that which is dead and breathing his life into it. You don't have to turn over a new leaf. You don't have to wait to January 1st and come up with uh, different things to do. 
He is life and his life comes to live in us. And so he's, he's saying, would you not give us as a people, as a land, life again? James Boyce said, prayer for revival implies that people who were once alive have died in a spiritual sense and now need to be given spiritual life again. That is what the church almost always needs and it is how revival comes. When should we cry out for revival? We should cry out for revival when the sinfulness of the present gives us a longing for a time in the past when God was present, real, powerful, and moving. We should cry out for a revival when we remember the great things that God has done and we don't see him doing them in our lives and in our church and in our land. That is when we should cry out for revival. By the way, I think we're long overdue for crying out for revival. When should we cry out for revival? When we sense that we are under the judgment of God. You don't have to look far to come to the conclusion that, that we as a people living in this nation are under, under the judgment of God. When should we cry out for revival? When rejoicing is absent or shallow or isolated. Why should we cry out for revival? So that we can rejoice in him, so that we can be glad in him. The word rejoice means to, to, to brighten up. It means to, to have this, this perpetual undergirding joy that just continues to spring up from us over and over and over again. The, 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 the revolving door of deep abiding joy that transcends circumstances. He says, revive your people so that they will rejoice in you. In other words, when we are revived, we will stop rejoicing in lesser things. In other words, there are some things that could cause you to rejoice. Imagine walking down the street and finding the lottery ticket that won that 1.5 billion. Have you ever imagined what you would do? I'm sure some of you in your Spirituality would just say, ah, by humbug. I'd be, you would have you heard me. I would have been rejoicing. I would have gone and gotten the whole whatever they were giving out in one lump sum. And I wouldn't be here this morning. Amen. I would be rejoicing. But I would be rejoicing in something that is far less than God reviving, bringing us his life to us again. He says, revive us. We rejoice in a lot of stuff. We rejoice in a lot of stuff. But they're all lesser things. There is something far greater to rejoice in, and that is our spiritual renewal, our spiritual life. We also see in the text what happens when revival comes. When revival comes, we rejoice in him. When revival comes, listen, look at the text, if you will. He says in verse 7, show us your steadfast love and grant us your salvation. When revival comes, there will be an obvious awareness of his steadfast love that delivers us again and again and invites us back into the family. There will be this sense when revival comes that we are loved by him with a steadfast love. You know, one of the healthiest things for your heart, for your mind, for your body, for your relationships, for your marriage, for your family, you know, one of the healthiest things that could possibly happen in all of those realms would be for us to understand that if we are in Christ, he has set his steadfast love upon us and we can wake up in the morning with all the things we have to worry about. But the one thing we don't have to worry about is that almighty, holy God who lives forever and gives eternal life, he loves us with his steadfast love. Don't miss that because that is the greatest need that you have. My wife is in Denver. We just had a third uh, or 12th grandchild. I said third, not because I'm, some of you think I'm losing my mind, but I'm not. It's the third that my fourth child had. So um, I, I'm weak on math, but I'm not, I'm not weak in understanding that. And so my wife's out in Denver and she, uh, I texted her last night. I'm like, I'm going to bed and I just died and slept all night. I never do that. And uh, woke up this morning and I'm standing in here. She gives me a call and she just says, we're praying for you and I love you. And that's good to know. I hope my wife loves me. I believe my wife loves me. Sometimes I doubt it. You do too. 
We have a very circumstantial love. But there's a God who loves us because of what his son has done. And you can wake up every morning knowing that you are loved and you didn't earn it, that he set it upon you. And it is a steadfast love. When revival comes, we rejoice in him. When revival comes, there's the obvious awareness of his steadfast love. When revival comes, there is a sense of it, an awareness of salvation. There is confidence in his completed work. When revival comes, it's all here in the text. There is a hearing of the word of God internally, experientially, transformationally. We hear the voice of the advocate speaking peace to us, the text says. We hear his words of peace, particularly as it relates to our relationship with him. I'm at peace with God. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to worry. When revival comes, there will be a nearness and a freshness and an aliveness and a relevance of salvation. Salvation will be celebrated when revival comes. And when revival comes, the weightiness of God, if you will, look at verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. What does glory mean? Glory, glory means the, the weightiness. The weightiness of God will dwell in our land. The importance of God. The word dwell just means to settle in. It's not just going to have some wag standing on the corner um, across, the, you know, standing on the corner out there at, at, a, at, a, at a stop sign shouting out stuff about God, which is fine, which is great, which I respect, which I'm too scared to do, and some people do it, and I, I'm glad that they do. But he's talking about there's going to be this sense of the weightiness or the importance or the significance of God that comes and sits and dwells in the land that we live in. He's talking to Israel here. And I believe there are those that have seen it in their lifetime, even in the land that we live in. That glory, that the weightiness of God, that the significance of God, that the importance of God will settle down and dwell. In other words, there is this weight of sin that falls on us apart from Christ and it weighs us down. There is this covering, this sin, this stain that that becomes our identity. This is who I am. But all of a sudden now that has been forgiven and there is a new weight that comes to the land and it is the weightiness of God and that weightiness gives life and that weightiness brings freedom to us. And then in verse 10, which is this beautiful gospel declaration, he says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. I would say this, that the, the gospel is the key to revival. Now, what, what is he saying here? He's, he's saying that these two things, there are these two things that, are, that, that really, on paper, don't look like they go together. Loving kindness on one side, right? This, this mercy on one side. And on the other side, you've got this righteousness. You've got this truth. And this mercy over here looks and says, I forgive you. I love you. I give you steadfast love. You've got the truth over here that says, you crossed the line, you sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God, you've sinned, right? That's what the truth would say. That's what God in his holiness would say to every single one of us. You are a sinner. You are deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. There is no hope for you. But on the other side, there is this mercy that says, I love you. And, and he's saying that this odd thing has happened. These two things that you would never, ever see holding hands or dwelling together or cooperating together on any project. These two things have met together. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace are actually kissing each other. This is scandalous. This is scandalous. But if you read Romans 3.26, Jesus Christ is both the, both the just and the justifier. And it is Jesus Christ who met the righteous requirements of a holy God by paying sin's penalty for you and me. And it is in Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead that he can give us his righteousness and offer us life, not based on anything that we have done, but based on everything that he has done. And so he can say there is, this, there is this justice and there is this 
this law and there is this truth and there is this mercy. And they work together and it's called the gospel. It's called the gospel. That is the key to revival. Loving kindness and grace meet together. Two things that were polar opposites are now kissing and working together to accomplish a common goal. And then finally, verses 10 to 13, and my time is gone, let me hasten. Future hope. Verse 11, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. It's like you're walking, it's like you're walking down the street and, and this, the, the fruits of revival are just growing up out of the ground and they're hanging as you walk down. It's like they're hanging baskets everywhere. Everywhere you go, you just see the evidence of the mercy of God. You see the evidence of the love of God. You see the evidence of, of his steadfast love. You see the evidence of a people that are, that are, that are made righteous because of what he's done. It's just like everywhere you go, it's everything you see. It's screaming at you from every quarter, corridor. When revival comes, it will bring spiritual awareness. But he's also giving us a snapshot of eternity because just like Israel, you know, we're at, we're at the brink of extinction to, to the top of the mountain where we're up there at the Mount of Transfiguration, just awed at all that we see God do. And that's been my life and that's probably been your life. It's this up and down. It's this spiritual yo-yo. Maybe we're consistent with our disciplines. Maybe externally we don't do anything wrong, but on the inside there are these struggles that we constantly face and deal with. And he's saying there's going to come a time in eternity when everything is going to be made right. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and your land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. We're going, to be able to, we're going to be able to follow Christ. We're going to be able to put our feet wherever he has made a footprint and everything is going to go just the way it is supposed to go, but that's not here. It's our future hope. But until then, we again should be crying out for revival. Most of us here today probably came to Christ as a result of some revival in the past. No, 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 not me. I was on a desert island and the Bible came floating up and, and I opened it to John 3.16. And I, I praise the Lord for that. God's able to do that. Uh, when, I, when I went into the ministry, the second church I pastored was in Fairburn, Georgia. And um, it was started back in the 1830s. Uh, Macedonia Baptist Church was started back in the 1830s. Many churches around here uh, in the metro Atlanta area down in the south were started in the 1830s. We have the first great awakening that occurred from 1730 to 1770. And uh, Jonathan Edwards is credited sort of with the beginning of that, centers in the hands of an angry God. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but history has recorded it that way. That played an instrumental role in the American Revolution. But we also see in the early 1800s another... Uh, second great awakening that broke forth. And so many of the churches that many people grew up in were churches, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist churches were products of this outpouring of revival. Um, and I, I, would, I would hope that our hearts would long to see that kind of awakening take place again and again and again but I can't think of a time in my life when the need for that is any greater than it is right now. Um, you say, what do you want us to do with that? What's your application? I just want you to pray for revival. I want you to look at this text, and I want you to look at how, how whichever son of Korah this was wrote this out for the people of God to worship with, and I want you to begin to pray like he prayed for revival. Maybe you need more than scripture and some 64-year-old talking head standing in front of you that maybe doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, let me, let me share some quotes for some folks to do and, who do and I'm done. Spurgeon said, O men and brethren, what would this heart feel if I could but believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray for revival. Men whose faith is large enough 
and their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to exercise unceasing intercessions that God would appear among us and do wondrous things as in times of former generations. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, when did you last hear anyone praying for revival, praying that God might open the windows of heaven and pour out his spirit? When did you last pray for that yourself? I suggest seriously that we are neglecting this almost entirely. We are guilty of forgetting the authority of the Holy Spirit. When God sends revival, he can do more in a single day than in 50 years of all of our organization. That is the verdict of sheer history, which emerges clearly from the long story of the church. John Wesley said, I continue to dream and pray for a revival of holiness in our day that moves forth in mission and creates authentic community in which each person can be unleashed through the empowerment of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions. And then John Piper writing, and I close with this, of G. Campbell Morgan. He said, G. Campbell Morgan famously observed how a sailor has no impact on the wind, but a good sailor knows the wind and knows how to set the sails when the wind blows. Let us study the history of revival and let us gather in what Edwards, Jonathan Edwards called, a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer so that we will know when the Spirit moves afresh then we will set ourselves accordingly. I just want you to pray for revival. I want you to look at this text and I want you to pray for revival. And there are some guys that hold a, a much larger place in history than I do that have longed for their church and longed for our church to do the same thing. Before I pray, every week we remember the Lord. These are symbols of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you know him, we invite you to come. Again, I say it again, come in uh, solemnity. Come in seriousness. Come and understand the price that he paid for my sin and your sin, but come in great joy. Come knowing that the weight of your sin has been lifted. Come knowing that the stain of your sin has been removed if you are trusting Christ and what he has done. This doesn't save you. This is just a way for us to stop everything. Just stop everything and focus our attention corporately and individually and exclusively on what Christ has done and let our hearts find themselves in worship to him for his salvation. Let's pray together.